Um, you know, as a pilot, I was taught that if you're flying and you're only one degree off, the further you go, the further away you get from the target where you're trying to get. And a lot of times what would happen is, as a pilot, you would be distracted by other things in your cockpit, other things going on around you, whether it was weather, whether it was the enemy shooting missiles at you, whatever it was. And if you didn't constantly scan, they taught us that from the very first time we were in an airplane, first thing you learn is to scan. Heading, altitude, airspeed. Heading, altitude, airspeed. And the reason we were taught that is because if you don't scan and you start to drift in any one of those areas, it could be fatal for you. It could be costly. There could be extreme consequences. If you think you're going this way and you're, you're really going that way, that way could take you over the enemy when you're not ready to go over the enemy. You think you're flying over a safe area and you're not. If you're supposed to be at 5,000 feet and you're at 4,000 feet, you can have midair. If you're supposed to be at 250 knots and you're at 170 knots, you could stall the plane and flip and go into a spin and die. So scan was very important. In the same way, in our life, we are to spiritually scan things in our heart constantly because otherwise spiritual drift sets in. We start to drift. The writer to Hebrews writes Hebrews chapter 2. What he does is, is I mean, they didn't have chapter headings back when they wrote these letters. They, this was one long continuous letter, right? So he starts off, and remember two weeks ago, we looked at the three types of audiences that he was writing. The first audience was a Jewish believer who was struggling, but who had bought in not only intellectually, but with his whole heart. He was all in, but he was struggling. That's the first and primary group that this writer is addressing. The second group is an intellectually bought in person, but their heart's not there. They're not all in. They just have intellectually conceded that yes, He could be Messiah, and I believe that, but it has no impact on their life. That's group two. Group three was a, a person who's not even bought into the fact that He's Messiah. They, they haven't rejected Him so much as they just don't even know if He's real. They're still trying to figure it out. So those are the three groups. And throughout this letter, what you're going to see is teaching and warning. Teaching and warning. Are warnings important? Of course. Yeah, why do you think on electrical cords they put warnings? Have you ever been shot by 220 volts? I have. It's not fun. I'll tell you that. I was helping my dad with a refrigerator one time. He worked on refrigerators out in the backyard. So he had these old... He just put like these electrical sockets out there. They were just outside in the elements, right? But he knew better when he was around them if it had been raining or if there was something. Like he knew what to do and I didn't. And one day I just got, wow, it shocked me. Got my attention 
there's reasons they put those warnings on cords so you don't get in a shower or a bathtub you know with a hair dryer <laughs> dry your hair you go nobody would ever do that but people have done stupid stuff like that and that's why they put those warnings on there warnings are important so this writer give these he gives warnings in between but they're not just warnings they're invitations to respond to me there's nothing worse than a pastor or a preacher or a teacher who gets up and teaches you great biblical truth and then ends with no invitation to respond to me, that, that's, that, that's, it's just wrong. Can you imagine a doctor giving you a diagnosis and saying, okay. He doesn't give you a prescription. Doesn't tell you what to do with it. He just gives you, this is what's going on. Okay. And, and walks away. But there, there's pastors and teachers that will get up and they'll teach because they love to teach, but then they never invite people to respond. This writer doesn't do that. He gives us this great teaching of chapter 1. And then he throws in this invitation for people to be warned and to respond to what they've heard. Now, if you remember, when we looked at the first, or the first part where we looked at the three types of listeners, we went right out of that into the theme of the book, which is Christ is Supreme. And he showed us that Christ is Supreme to angels. And he showed us in four ways in uh, 1, 4 through 14, how they're supreme, uh, how Christ is Supreme to angels. First, He's in name, and it says it right in the text. He got a name above their name. His name was the Son of God. They were servants of God. Which is greater, a son or a servant? Son. son. The Son. The second way was position. He said the angels worship God. But Jesus, it said, is worshipped. So which is greater, the worshipped? Or the worshiper. It was the worshiper. And see, the people that would receive this, they viewed angels as just below God. So to say that Jesus was above angels is to say that Jesus was God. And he's quoting Old Testament passages to get this across. The third way that, they're, that Jesus is greater is in nature. And we saw two ways. Authoritative in nature and eternal in nature. Okay, angels are not authoritative. If they bring authority in something they say, it's not theirs, it's from God. They're just, they're just a messenger. So if a general dispatches a captain to tell somebody something, who's the one in authority? The general. The general, not the captain. The captain's just relaying the message. So, so nature was the third way that Christ was supreme. And he's, again, quoting from the Old Testament when he says that. And then the fourth way was His sovereignty. Jesus is sovereign. He's always been the ruler. And I'm going to show you a text later in the, the, the teaching today, and you're going to go, wow. You may say, I never saw it, because I looked at it and I go, I don't think I've ever caught that. And Brad, you and I talk about it all the time. How many times do we read through Scripture and we blow right over stuff. And I look at that day and I go, how did I never catch that? It was great. I love those. Those little, I call them little diamond shimmers. Every you see a new, new facet to the diamond. And so, those are the four ways that Christ is supreme. Now, why is that important? Well, because in the first verse of chapter 2, it starts off with therefore. 
And so everything I just shared with you, he, that's what he's referencing when he says, therefore, because of all these things that I just shared, now you need to listen to what this is saying. Because that's what the therefore is for. So I want to give you three reasons that we should be all in with Jesus. Because I think that's what he's trying to get across in this text. But before we do that, I just want to make a, a couple of more comments about this warning. God's Word always, and you can underline always, requires a response. His Word never goes out without requiring a response. Anytime God gave His Word to people in the Old Testament or in the New, there was a response required. Now, did people always heed that? No. I was talking to a guy the other day. And I, was, I, I invited him to come to SWAT. And, and I asked him, I said, are you part of a group? Well, not really. And, I, and I, I said, well, why don't you come be a part? I mean, we're just a bunch of guys getting together around the Word. He was, uh, you know what? I don't have time. I'm too busy with my business. And things are going really good. And I'm like... Okay, I get that. But what do you do when the day that it doesn't do good anymore? And you placed all your efforts into that with no spiritual underpinnings. You see, that's what people do. A lot of people, they only go to God when life falls apart. When life's good, they could care less about Him. And God would give His Word to people how many times? Go back. I'm telling you, if you do any kind of study in Scripture of God saying this, you'll see it's a bunch. Be careful. Don't think that you've done all these things that's happening in your life. All these blessings you're getting. Don't think that it's your hard work. Don't think that it's your efforts. When He blesses, we tend to forget Him a lot of times. And so He gives His Word and He wants a response. And so this particular warning in 1-4 through four is one of five that we're going to see in the Scriptures. And they're repeated. Okay? And this is to pay attention to His Word. That's what this warning is. Pay attention to God's Word. The second one is to, to see Him. The third one is to trust Him. The fourth one is to believe Him. And the fifth one is to obey Him. So those are the five warnings spread out through, through Hebrews, and we're going to do it. But this particular warning, remember I talked about the three audiences. This is directed to audience number two. This is the intellectually convinced, but their hearts are not there. And we're going to, I'm going to show you why I believe that's the audience he's addressing here. Okay, The, the third group, it's not the third group because they're still trying to figure it out. This group is there. Now, one of the questions that comes up is he uses the term us or we. So it would make you think if what I'm saying is true, then he's not a believer. No, you've got to understand in the, in the West, we're very individualistic. But in the East, they're community-minded. They're very communal in the way they think. First time I went to an Eastern place and I was sharing and I was preaching, I would say you a lot. You need to do this. You need to do that. And a guy came up to me afterwards and said, can I talk to you? I said, sure. He said, can I give you some feedback? I said, sure. He goes, when you're talking to people here, it would be better received if you use the term we. Our, plural. 
because otherwise they feel like you're kind of pounding them down. That's not the way we communicate in our culture. So in the Eastern culture, so that's just a cultural thing when he says we are us. He's not lumping himself as an unbeliever, but we're going to see he makes a comment in, um, in verse 2 that he, he says that basically, I'm sorry, verse 3, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You can't neglect salvation if you possess it. So that's why I believe he's talking to the second group. But, even though he's talking to people who are intellectually there but not there in their hearts, and he's warning them about drifting, could we learn something from that even if we're in the first group? See, I think most guys here in this study or any SWAT study are in groups one or group two. You're either in group one or two. Because most people here aren't going, well, I still don't know if I believe. Most, most people have gotten enough information that they said, I'm either, yes, I believe He died on the cross. Yes, I believe He said He's the King of Kings. But I'm just not ready to commit. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've shared the Gospel with people and they said, yeah, you know, that sounds great, but it's just not for me. They, they listen, they weigh it, and they go, okay, I don't, I'm not there. Or they go, yeah, I believe it, but I'm just not ready to change my life. I'm not ready to give up. One of the tragic things one time I remember a guy asked me, he goes, you know, if I buy into what you're saying, do I have to give up drinking alcohol? That's what he asked me. And I said, if you really understood what I said, you wouldn't even ask that question. You wouldn't ask that question. Because if you understood the depth of who you are, how, how, how needy you are, and what He's offering you, alcohol would be the least of your worries. Whether you get to drink alcohol or not. When you weigh drinking a beer, or drinking a, a, a glass of wine, or a shot of Mad Dog 2020, whatever your flavor, it doesn't matter against eternity and hell, eternity away from the Father, eternity away from His love and loneliness with no hope and no help. There's no comparison. Right. That, that other thought wouldn't even be there. Right. And so I said, you really must not understand what I'm saying. So he is writing to people who have said, yes, we understand, but we're just not ready to commit. And they didn't. So, I told you I shared three reasons to be all in. First reason we see in the first verse, the supremacy of Jesus to anything else. The supremacy of Jesus to anything else is why we should be all in with Him. It shouldn't be an issue for us. He's supreme to everything and anything. And we're going to look at that. The severity, the second thing, is the severity of consequences for rejecting Him. If the first one doesn't make you want to be all in, the second one surely should make you want to be all in because it's the severity of the consequences of rejecting Him. That's what the writer's bringing out in verses 2 and 3. And then third is in verse 4, the supernatural sign, or signs, plural, of God's finger. 
the supernatural signs of God's finger. And what I mean by that, in the Old Testament, back in uh, the Torah and, and the book of Exodus, when Moses went and confronted Pharaoh, Pharaoh had his own little supernatural entourage, magicians who everything at first Moses was doing and Aaron was doing, they were mimicking. But then they came to something they couldn't mimic. And they made the statement, this, they went to Pharaoh and said, this is the finger of God. And so Ray Vanderlaan over in, in um, Israel, every time he says the Shema, and we say the Shema at every teaching, he would put his little finger out this, like this. And it was a reminder to him that when we're saying we love You, Lord, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that His little finger can do anything it wants to do to take care of my life. And I'm trusting in His power. And the hand of God, when David talks about being delivered, Elijah talks about being delivered, any of these people who are going up against great odds, they talk about the hand of God so that you may know that there's a God Jesus, even over in uh, the New Testament, and Luke says, he references the finger of God. When Phar uh, Pharisees or Sadducees, I can't remember which, were ridiculing him saying he was working with Baal, he said, no, if this is the finger of God, then it can't be from Satan. So, those three things, supremacy of Jesus to anything else, the severity of consequences of rejecting Him, and the su supernatural signs of God's finger. So let's read the passage and then come back and look at each one of these for the next few minutes. So looking in Hebrews 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So, he starts off in verse 1, Therefore, and remember, we talked about all those things that He said. All those things. What did He say about Jesus in verse 1 of chapter 1? He's the Son of God. He's God's Son. The Son of the, 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 the ruler of the whole universe. He's God's Son. He's also the Creator. Jesus is the Creator. All things were made by Him. And, and for Him. So He's the Creator. Hebrews chapter 1 says He's the radiance of God. In other words, He's what glows from God. He's the exact imprint of His nature. He's better than angels. It just emphasized that point. Drove it home over and over. He's eternal. He wasn't created. He forgives our sin. He gives us freedom. He gives us eternal life. Why wouldn't that make us want to be all in? And, and, and for somebody to buy in intellectually, yes, 
I see the connection between the Old Testament prophecies and the fact that Jesus says He's Messiah. I see that. Yes, He, he probably is Messiah, but I'm not ready to uh, allow Him to direct my life. How, how could that happen? He says, He's got to be supreme to everything. Now for you and I, we're believers. Hopefully, hopefully if you're in this room, you're a bought-in, all-in believer who at the worst case is just struggling spiritually. But if you're here and you have only intellectually bought in, maybe you got confirmed as a child, maybe you got baptized as a young person, maybe you've been in church your whole life. I was in Kazakhstan with a pastor for 25 years. A guy was a pastor who came to me after I preached the Gospel one night and said, Doug, tonight God really got a hold of my heart. And I realized I've not been a true believer. For 25 years he'd been pastoring a church. So just because you say something doesn't mean it's captivated you to where you're all in. And it doesn't mean perfection. It's direction of your life. It's the fact that you had yielded your heart up to the King of Kings to say, I'm yours. I know the only place that I'm safe is in your care and in your use, however you want to use me. It's hard for us in this world to understand that in the world we live in because we have so many individual liberties and freedoms that for us, liberty is our God. Freedom is our God. We worship our own freedom. We worship our own rule. But Christ has to be supreme. That's what He's saying. He says, therefore, because of all these things about Jesus, He says, we must pay closer attention. To what we have heard. To the Word. So, that's important, guys. We must pay closer attention to the Word. Lest we drift away. That word used there, the Greek word used for drift away means let slip. It it might say let slip in your translation. What it means is it's a nautical term that means an anchor has come out because of negligence. Really not even negligence. It's more than just negligence. It's, It's actually... A person wasn't doing what they were supposed to do, so the anchor came out and the boat got trashed. The boat got drifting away and drifted into trouble. And that's what it's talking about. And I think about our lives and I think about our own drifting. Going back to that thing I said about being a pilot. How do we know when we're drifting? What are some things we can scan in our life, just like as a pilot, I scan heading altitude airspeed? Well, I'll tell you a couple of things. First of all, how about as time goes in your life, the years? Are you progressing with Him? If you look back over your life, and you go, how long? I don't know, a week, two weeks? How long do you want to wait till you're scanned? If you're a pilot and you wait too long, you die. I, I would be scanning every day. Am I growing every day? Or am I just staying in one place? Because you don't stay in one place with Christ. You're either going toward Him or going away from Him. And Satan is doing everything he can to distract us, to get us away from Him. To drift. So time. Another thing is, how do we respond to God's Word? 
how do we respond to it when it's presented to us? And sometimes His Word is presented as we read it. Sometimes it's presented when you hear it preached or taught. Sometimes it might be when a brother comes up to you and says, Brad, you know what? I saw you the other day with a woman who was not your wife having lunch. And it didn't look very good. And the Bible says that we should live a life above reproach. We have you know, a couple of ways we can respond when we have truth like that given to us. One, we can be like Cain and we can get angry. You know, watch out Cain. Satan's creeping at your door. He wants you. And what does he do? After God tells him that, he goes and kills his brother. That's one way to respond. The second way to respond is like Saul. When, when we get confronted with truth, we go, it's their fault. They made me do it. I didn't really want to do it. They wanted to keep the best sheep for you and, and the, the spoils. They wanted to give you these offerings. And what did God do? He stripped the kingdom from him. The way we respond is like David. You know, this morning I had a guy come up to me and after the teaching, and he says, man, I've been laying in bed at night thinking about this stuff. And, and thinking about the exact stuff you were talking about. What do I do? And I said, you know what you do? You just tell them you're sorry and repent. It's not just saying I'm sorry. It's repenting, which means basically getting on a new path, saying I don't want to go down the same way I'm gone. I want to go in a new direction. And once you tell them that, and you allow Him to have His proper place in your life, that's all He wants. He's not sitting there waiting for you to get out of line again. He's going, great, now we're back in relationship. <coughs> and that's what He wants. You know, my daughter, I, I got on to my daughter Kate the other night, or Monday. Kate, um, she did something. It wasn't even big. Her friends would think, that's really chintzy. For us, it was big. Because it was disobedient to what I told her to do. And it, it, it might seem small in the big scheme of things, but for me, it was big. And so I came down hard. And, and, I, and she was mad, man. She was so mad about it. I mean, I drove her to school with Ellie. Didn't say a word all the way to school. And so last night, I walked into her room because she had told me she was sorry. And I went out and just talked to her. And she said, Dad, I was so mad Monday. I was so mad because I, I just was mad about it that you did this and got on to me like this. And, and, and I said, well, what changed, Kate? And she said, I came home from school and I prayed. And as I prayed, God convicted my heart. And I knew what I needed to do. And I said, so you spent time with him, right? And she said, yeah. See, part of the issue for us is it becomes a downward vicious cycle. We do something that we know deep in our heart offends God. Then we feel guilty to read the Bible. Or we feel like God's sitting up there and we're not close to Him. And so we don't want to, get, we don't want to talk to Him because we have to admit that we've blown it. And so we end up not talking to Him and we just drift and drift and drift and drift. And, it, and, and Satan's loving it. He's going, oh, that's right. Just keep drifting away. That's what I want. Because I don't want anybody being a witness for him. 
And we become a witness for Satan because people look at our life and they go, okay, he's just like me. It makes them feel better. He doesn't love God. So I'm not that bad after all. And so, if we're scanning time, if we're scanning, how do we respond to His Word? Third thing is interest. Priorities. What, if, you know what? If, if we're talking to somebody about God's Word or His principles, or talking to somebody about something God did, and, and they go, hey, did you see what the stock market did yesterday? Or did I, you know what? Did I tell you I got a new boat? They have no interest in spiritual conversation when you're talking to them. You probably need to be scanning a little quicker. Because that's not a good sign. And listen, I get that we have things going on. I'm not saying you can't have a life outside of just always talking about spiritual things. But what I'm saying is when you're telling somebody how God radically changed somebody's life and all they want to do is tell you about the money they made on the stock market, there's a disconnect there. And, and, and we need to be aware of that and respond appropriately to that. When somebody says to us, you know what, brother? I'm just sharing with you about my brother Gil, how his whole life changed in a moment and God rescued him from darkness, brought him into light, and you just want to tell me how you made 100 k in the stock market. God doesn't care that. God owns it all anyway. And so all in means understanding He's supreme over everything and we need to be scanning these drift areas. And that's what He's saying to them. He's inviting them to respond. Second, He goes into the severity of consequences for rejecting Him. Verse 2, He says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And you go, wait a minute, what message? Well, do you know that the angels brought the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. They were there. And I'm going to give you some verses. I already mentioned them last week. I think Acts 5. I'm sorry, Acts 7. Remember that? Last week I mentioned Acts 7, 38 and 53. In Acts 7, 38 and 53, it's referencing the angels taking the law to, to Moses on Mount Sinai. Galatians 3.19 also. So the angels brought us the Old Covenant. And what he says is, since this message was reliable and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. That, if that don't make your eyeballs stand up for a second, what is a just retribution? Well, I'm going to read. What a, listen, people were punished when they broke the Old Covenant. God says don't commit adultery. If they committed adultery, they died. God said, keep the Sabbath. If you didn't keep the Sabbath, you died. Now, let me read a couple examples. Leviticus 24. We'll go just going to hit a couple of them real quick. Leviticus, number, Leviticus 24, verse 14. Listen to this. Verse 14. Bring out of the camp the one who cursed and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him and speak to the people of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. 
Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, that's the foreigner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. Alright, go to Numbers. Next book over. Numbers 15. Numbers 15, verse 32. Now while the people of Israel were in the wilderness, this is Numbers 15, 32. While they were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They had put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, The man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. The guy was killed for picking up sticks on Sunday. Or Saturday, actually for them it was a Sabbath. I want you to think about that for a second. It wasn't the act of picking up sticks. It was the disobedience of what God had commanded them. He took it serious. Pop over to Deuteronomy chapter 17. And this will give you some insight why God was doing what He did. Deuteronomy 17, verse 2. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing His covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gate that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. Look down at verse 13. And all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. You see, when you think that you're bigger than God and you can go against Him, that's presumption. That's the height of pride. And God says, I'm not going to deal with it except by bringing swift punishment to you. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, if in dealing with the old covenant God did that, how much more is He going to deal when people trample His Son? When the Son comes and gives the new covenant, do you think it's going to be less or greater than what happened under the old? The punishment, he's saying, is going to be more severe. Look at what he says. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? See, Jesus brought the new covenant. We know that in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus goes into Nazareth, he steps into the temple or synagogue and he reads from Isaiah. This, you know, this, the captives are free. The sick are healed. Messiah's come, and this has been fulfilled today in your presence. In other words, I'm Messiah. It's the first gospel message really preached. In the New Testament, Jesus proclaims it. And what do they do? They want to kill him. 
Jesus brought the new covenant. Angels brought the old. Jesus brought the new. People were justly punished for breaking the old. And they're going to be justly condemned forever for rejecting Christ. And that's the point he's making. If you think that was bad, this is worse. This is worse. There's, do you know there's degrees of punishment in hell? Yeah. I'm going to show you Mark 12. Over in Mark 12, verse 38. And Jesus is talking, um, Mark 12, verse 38. Jesus is uh, talking and He's warning against the scribes. And in His teaching, He said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in robes and like greetings in the marketplace and they have the best seats, the chief seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast. They devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So He's saying there's a level of condemnation. And you know why? Go over to um, Luke 12 real quick. Right after Mark is Luke 12. In Luke 12, he's telling a parable and he's talking about some servants and they didn't do what they were supposed to do. 12 verse 47. And he says, And the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. There's different degrees of punishment. And so, this writer is saying, listen, if the angels brought this covenant and people violating, violated it, and they were justly punished, if you neglect Christ, you reject Christ, there's no way to escape it. There's no way to escape the punishment. It's going to be bad. And then he finishes in uh, verse 4 by talking about the supernatural signs of the finger of God. He says, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. See, God not only just said this stuff, but He actually brought attesting miracles to give credence to the fact that this was the Word of God. Jesus' words were confirmed by His miracles, right? What did He do? He, he healed a blind man who had been born blind from birth. He healed a man who was lame. He raised people from the dead. He brought Lazarus out of the tomb after three days. And so, He did all these things that were attesting to the Word that He was giving that this was from God. Now, the apostles, what about them? Same thing. Did they heal people? Did they raise people from the dead? Did they do miracles? He did. But He used them to attest to the Word that they were getting. Now, here's another way they were attested to. Over in Acts chapter 4, when they were in front of the religious leaders, they said, these are uneducated, common men. How are they so bold? But they had been with Jesus, it says. Amen. God was confirming their message. He was. By their boldness there, it wasn't just... See, there's a lot of people today who get all caught up in sign miracles. And I want to show something to you. It said 
that they were with Jesus and the word was confirmed. Now, I want to tell you, I want to read, this is from, um, uh, how many of you guys have ever heard of a guy named Eusebius? He was a historian. He wrote a book called The Ecclesiastical History and it basically told the history of the early church. How for when the apostles uh, ministered to people, those people ministered to people and it's recorded and they've actually found fragments from that time period that tell this stuff. So this is one in his book called The Ecclesiastical History and it says it was preserved on an autobiographical fragment from a guy named Irenaeus of Lyons. And Irenaeus was brought to Christ by the ministry of a guy named Polycarp, who was an early church father. Polycarp was martyred in 155 A.D. But listen to what Eusebius wrote. And as he, talking about Polycarp, remembered their words, talking about the apostles, and what he heard from them concerning the Lord, and concerning his miracles and his teaching, having received from them, talking about the apostles, from eyewitnesses of the word of life, Polycarp related all things in harmony with the scriptures. So what was the test for Polycarp? How did he attest to what they said? Where did he go? Was he looking for a miracle? No, he went to the Scriptures. These things, these things being told me by the mercy of God, I listened to them attentively, noting them down, not on paper, but in my heart, and continually through God's grace, I recall them faithfully. And, and Irenaeus was a faithful person who passed it on to others, just like it says in 2 Timothy. But what I want you to get there is what he said he used to attest whether the word was true or not. Was it a miracle? Yes, because this is as much a miracle as anything else I've said today was a miracle. 2,000 years, 40 authors, all one message, all attested to by history. Not one historical or geographical error in here. Amen. Nothing. No archaeological find has disproved anything or made anything in this book irrelevant. 2,000 years they've been trying to destroy it. The very fact that we have it attests to it. And what does it say? Jesus is supreme. Amen. Jesus is supreme. And there's going to be a judgment. The question for you and me is, what do we do with that? Dave, that's a question you like to ask. What do we do with the information now that we have it and we possess it? Well, I want you to think about these three things. First of all, an all-in. Only you know. I don't know. You and God. Am I all-in? Please don't take a chance on just thinking that it's just up here. Just tell him. This guy comes up to me and says, man, I've been wrestling with this. What do I do? I said, tell him you're all in. Be all in. Make a choice. Sold out. Yeah, be all in. Second, am I living out His Word? Am I displaying to other people what He says? Now, listen what it says. I, want, I, want, this is, I forgot to do this over in Jude real quick. Time's up. Jude 5. Listen. Dave, I never saw this. 
Until this morning. I know. What you didn't say when you talked about the Lord before is what if the Lord shows you something you never saw before? Do you get excited? Yeah, I do get excited. Yeah. Now, now, this, this, is, this is big right here. Listen, how many of you guys have ever had a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness? I'm going to give you a verse that I've never used before that now I'm going to use a, a lot. Listen to this. Verse 5 of Jude. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, first of all, he's, he's reminded Sorry, Jude, Jude, 5th verse. It's only one chapter. Only one chapter. All right, but listen to what he says. Jude says, I, "I listen. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, what was happening to the people that Jude was writing? They were drifting. They had false teachers coming in. They were drifting. They stopped scanning. Okay. He says that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Wait a minute. Who saved a people out of the land of Egypt?" Who saved the people out of the land of Egypt? Yeah, wait, wait. Yeah, but but who saved the people out of the land of Egypt? Yeah, we we just read Jesus, but who was Jesus? He was God. He is God. You know what Jehovah's Witness say? He's not God. Now you've got a verse you can take them to. And you can be like me. You can get an X put on your house too. Where they won't come by your house anymore. And you start talking to them. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt and afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. I thought Jesus was all love. There is no justice, guys, without punishment. The wages of sin is death. Justice. He's a just God. So here's the thing. Am I living out His Word or am I drifting? Am I drifting? Only you know. We should be asking it every day. So here's the thing. God created you and me for relationship and partnership. We in our selfish rebellion, we typically we want to drift away. We want our independence. But He says, no. I want you and my family... 2,000 years ago, God sent Jesus to earth to live a perfect life, be the perfect sacrifice, and say, I'm inviting you to be in relationship and in partnership. What are you going to do? And it's not just, I'm in. Okay, I'm in the Marine Corps now. Now I get my uniform. It's, I'm in. And my whole life on earth is training. So as you're going through training, if you're drifting, guys, you're going to be a casualty. And you're going to be sidelined. You're not going to be in the battle. So you're constantly training. And you know what He uses more than anything to train us? The desert. Right, Gil? Keeps you focused, doesn't it? I'll tell you what. You stay a lot more focused when you're in the desert than you do. I was watching one foot in front of the other when I was in that desert, man. I was like, I was twisting my ankle on rocks and everything. I'm like, I'm just watching right in front of me. You can't run in the desert. You have to walk one step at a time. And I was sharing with Stephen just the other day. I was talking about the radio and I was struggling because I was just like, Lord, I just need a broom tree. I just need a little bit of encouragement to know this is what you want us to do. 
Last night, I go home and I got an email. I thought it was a spam. It was in my junk mail folder. And it was uh, from Charles Schwab Charitable. Somebody up in North Carolina sent a $2,000 check, which pays the radio for next month. And it said, for SWAT radio. Praise be to God. How cool is that? Cool. Because He's supreme. He knows what we need before we ever need it. Amen. So, let's close our time in prayer. Sorry I went long. Too much stuff, man. Father, golly, thank You. Thank You. Thank You. Thank You. Thank You. You are a great and awesome God. Thank You for every guy here. Lord, thank You for being such a gracious Father to us. We thank You for the Son and His mercy and the Holy Spirit that ministers to us. And Lord, I know there may be guys here who have drifted or who are drifting. And Lord, I pray that right now that they would allow You to strengthen them to say no more. To say, I don't want to drift anymore. I want to be back on the right path. I know You're supreme, Jesus, and I want You to be my King the way You should be. Just tell them in your own words, right here, right now, that you want to stop the drifting. And He'll show you what that looks like. And Father, um, I just pray that if there's anyone here who is in that second group who is only intellectually drawn in, Lord, that right now they would bend their hearts to You and say, I want to be Yours. I'm all in. I'm all in. Just tell them. Father, thank You for Your Word today. We lift up these brothers who are in need. We pray for our brother Gil as he continues to go through the uh, chemo. Uh, We pray for uh, James Gregory, Lord, just with his uh, prostate. Uh, issues there. We pray for healing. We pray for Rod's sister, Vanessa, who may have lung cancer. Be with them. Lord, we pray for uh, Joe. Uh, Just uh, lift up his needs to you. For Sonny, uh, just lift him up and pray for family issues there and just pray that you would give him wisdom to know how to respond. For Scott's health, And Lord, for our brother Stephen, just uh, that you would provide for him. Give him a broom tree. We love you. Praise you. Thank you. Amen. Amen.